Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piskor. I'm Jim Rugg. And I'm Tom Scholey. And a uh, special guest in the house today. Say it every week. And uh, it's uh, very appropriate this week because we have Scott McLeod in the house. Jimmy, drop us some of that bibliography and let's get busy. It's hard not to start with understanding comics. I feel like it's one of the pinnacles of comics publishing history, uh, reinventing comics, making comics. On our maps, initially from Zot and Destroy, uh, some, some of my favorites from the indies of the 80s. Uh, Superman Adventures, recently The Sculptor, an amazing creator, possibly one of the most influential creators who published work during our lifetimes, just because it's so ubiquitous. So very excited to dig into some of uh, some of your process and some of your bibliography, Scott. That's the bibliography, but we still have to also talk about the Creator Bill of Rights, 24-hour yes. comics. Mm -hmm. Scott, <laughs> Scott McLeod, thanks for coming by, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Here's here's the opener, man. Uh, there's the legendary story. A lot of people don't know, man. Uh, we we sort of discovered it kind of late when we were doing our wizard coverage. Like understanding comics was a tundra comic, and and <laughs> yeah. And there's a famous story of Kevin Eastman going to SDCC with a plan. Uh, I got this new publishing venture. I'm gonna go to San Diego. I'm gonna buy five books. Uh, the second year of the business, man. I'm gonna up that to ten books per year. And then we're going to just keep rolling with 15 titles every year, fresh comics, my favorite stuff, given, given uh, money to great creators who deserve it so that they could do their dream projects. Goes to San Diego Comic-Con, comes back with 72 books or something like this. <laughs> uh, was, understanding, was Understanding Comics one of those books? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Tundra. Um... It was, uh, there's so much idealism going into it, you know, both Kevin and Peter, you know, Peter with the Zurich Foundation, both of them really want to give back to the community. And, uh, you know, all this, this mountain of money just kind of fell on them. And, you know, some people just hit, hit the money wall and it all goes up their nose or whatever. But these two guys wanted to, to give back and it was, it's really cool. And they did it in their own way. And uh, Kevin supported Understand Comics. And like you said, a whole bunch of other books. Uh, I'm happy to say, you know, mine was one of the ones that earned out, which, you know, was kind of a, you know, it made me feel good that that he didn't take a bath on it. Um, also, Tundra also, in addition to, you know, I published a whole, so, a whole lot of great stuff. I got to make special mention of Frank in the River, which is the first time I've seen Jim Woodring's Frank stories, because that that comic was the one that blew my mind. That was the one that that I just saw a whole a whole different. A dimension of comics uh, when when I got a hold of Jim stuff. When you met uh, Eastman to propose it or whatever, like like how does that work? Were there some tangible pages? Was it uh, all headspace and an idea? Um, what what was that like? Yeah, I put together a whole giant proposal. In the end, I I really didn't have to, you know, because when I was finally sitting down in front of Kevin, we already knew each other, you know. He was just like, you know, here, here's, you know, it's like they, you know, like reaching into a drawer and like trying to push money at me. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. No, you, I, how about you pay me by page? So, you know, so I don't, so you don't give me too much up front. And then I just like, I, like I blow it all. Just how about I give you pages? You give me a little money. I give you some more pages. You give me a little money. And, and we worked out a rate and everything was really cool from then. And, um, Oh, they were a great idealistic gang, you know, in the end, I guess, Tundra, they weren't able to quite make a go of it uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, you know, it was his first outing with publishing and, and all, but some great books got published. And, and like I always say, you know, no matter what happens to the company, the book comes out, it's there forever. You know, 
I mean, okay, not forever, but you know what I mean? It's just like, you, you can't, when the company goes under, the books don't all evaporate. It's not like you kill Dracula and all of his followers like go away, right? All the people he turned into a vampire. No, those books, they're still out there and they're still, they're still making waves. I got to say though, in understanding comics and like page 21, I have this thing of like where I'm showing how pictures work. I'm showing icons and I have like a cow and a man and a logo and everything. It's just like, this is not a cow. This is not a man. It's playing on Magritte's uh, painting, uh, uh, the, the treachery of images. And there's this little logo and it says, this is not a company. It's the, tr- <laughs> it's the, t- the Tundra logo. And what's really great is, of course, by the time it came out, Dennis Kitchen was already running the show and the, it already changed hands and Tundra basically didn't exist anymore by the time that that was published. And at a certain point, when we went back to like second and third printings, Dennis Kitchen came up to me and said, hey, Scott, I was thinking, uh, how about we uh, substitute the, the Tundra logo for the kitchen sink logo? And I was like, well, you can, Dennis, but just bear in mind what happened last time and he's like i'm not superstitious so he's he replaced it with the kitchen sink logo and by the time the you know very soon thereafter there was no more kitchen sink either wow this is uh not a question we usually get into but since we're talking understanding comics and you mentioned that it earned out um did did that book just take off right away you know in terms of success were you surprised by it did it change your life what was that experience uh that side of it you know, Ivy and I, my, my wife and I, we had a lot of money troubles in those days. And like, we're putting the, the book together and we're always waiting on the latest check. And so it, it mattered, you know, to us. And we were really hoping we just had a kid. Everything was really desperate. And we're saying this book, it's getting all this great advanced press. You know, a lot of people liked it right out of the gate. But, but like once it actually hits the stands, we thought, you know, it could sell 6,000, which was not a lot in those days, right? numbers have changed. It could sell 6,000 or could sell 60,000. It's like, could be six or 60. We don't know which one it's going to be. Finally, the orders came in from the stores. It sold 6,000 copies. And we're like, okay, you know, hey, I did a book. I like the book. People like it. You know, let's just move on, build on that, see what we can do. And then the reorders started coming in and they just came in and came in and came in. Could you cite us? Was there a certain tipping point? Did did it get in the hands of somebody important who then created those reorders, or was it strictly word of mouth? Those six thousand copies begat another six thousand, begat another six thousand, and the gravy train yeah. is a rolling. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those people you mentioned had already seen it because we sent it out to them, <laughs> you know, because we're open to get quotes and stuff. But uh, no, it was all word of mouth, really. And you know, I went to the only trade show I ever really went to, you know, at that point in my career was Capital City no longer with us. But you know what we did was we printed a thousand copies and we just handed them out to retailers one at a time. Dum, dum, dum. I remember uh, Richardson's from, from Dark Horse was the first guy to get a copy. And we just thought, no, we like this book. We think it'll work. Let's just give it to retailers. Just give them a copy. You know? And that's we were right because they got a copy. They liked it. They ordered more. And then and then the people liked it. And then, of course, it spread out to other communities like, you know, game developers and interface guys. And it just sort of became a, a thing that was about more than just comics. You mentioned a tipping point, Ed, for the sale of that book. I wonder about it being a tipping point for comics uh, as a whole entering wider cultural status, you know, because it certainly is a book that's 
taught, obviously, uh, you know, we were, we were talking beforehand, if a college course teaches comics, probably understanding comics is on their list. Um, yeah. Having that language is helpful. You know, I mean, I, I think it opened a lot of doors for the way the, at least American culture at large looks at comics, um, you know, almost the second wave of that 80s graphic novel, you know, beginning rumblings of the 80s graphic novels, <laughs> comics for adults. It feels like understanding comics may have been the tipping point of like, yes, we can get this in universities and schools, uh, you know, whether it's an English department or an art department, it was suddenly like, this is a gateway for everybody to kind of, you know, enter the world of comics. It helps. But, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if it was the spearhead of the revolution, because I think a lot of it just came from books that were just good enough to get recognition. You know, Mouse had come out only a few years before it won the Pulitzer Prize, you know, uh, Spiegelman and, and Chris Ware and some others were doing some of their best work. Um, it was just a time where where comics I was kind of riding. I was riding the dragon, you know, I wasn't the dragon, right? Uh, I was giving them some words that they could use to describe this stuff. It helped that I was, it was kind of a, I was a native speaker, right? You know, I was coming from comics. It was a comic. And so that gave it this kind of street cred, I guess. Um, but it all would have been empty if it wasn't for the really great comics that were coming out at the time. It wasn't enough just to have one guy talking about it. You had to have this beachhead, like my friend James Stern puts it, you know, a beachhead of good work, right? A canon. And we're just starting to build the canon. I'm fascinated by that idea of giving away a thousand books. Like I uh, got a twist of publisher's arm to, to spend $600 on Facebook targeted ads or something like that. <laughs> and Putting up a thousand galleys, knowing that you're going to take that bath on those with the hopes that you're going to sell more. That's fantastic. Uh, was that was that a Kevin Eastman thing, or was uh, Kitchen Sink at the helm at this point? Do you think? I think I think by then uh, Dennis had a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, the the company was already in transition by the time the thing was done. Um, hold on, just one second. I got to ask you: Can you hear the the incredibly loud trash truck just outside my studio? Nope. All right, we're good. You can even leave that in. Whatever. <laughs> um, so. So yeah, but the, the other thing you got to remember, this is spring of 1993. Do you guys know what happened in fall of 1993? <laughs> the, the collapse of the comics industry? Well, there's that. There's something else that happened. Marvel bankruptcy, was that when it happened? Keep going. Keep going. A lot of people forget exactly how the dates line up on this thing. Superman died or Superman came back. <laughs> All fine guesses. But no, a little thing happened at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, at the Center for Supercomputing Applications. Somebody wrote a browser for this new thing, the World Wide Web. So like when you're thinking about promotion, like you mentioned, like social media, like Facebook is like, no. Now, that wasn't a thing yet. Right. You know, so we were still waiting for like, you know, waiting a whole minute just for a postage stamp size picture to load on the screen. And so the web comes along six months after my book. And then that that turns everything upside down. So promotion those days was a full page ad in the comics buyer's guide. Right. We did that. Right. You know, we 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 had the ads in the in the print media. Uh, but handing out the books was a good way to go straight to the retailers um, because they were our market in those days. Things have changed a lot. We forget how much things have changed since 93. Were you promoting uh, on, on this first web browser? Is that something that, that you were you know, 
aware of and able to use a little bit, even maybe not postage size images, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, on, on message groups or whatever, what were you promoting there from the beginning? Oh, well, the other thing is that while I was working on understanding comics, I, you know, I finally got my first computer. You know, I got one of those little Macs that looks like the like the little if you're a cartoonist, you want to draw like a funny cartoon about the first Mac. It's that one, you know, the one little little face in it. Um, and then I started getting better computers. I got a scanner, all this sort of stuff. So by the time the ink was dry on understanding, I already was completely obsessed. I was super obsessed with computers and we already had stuff like CD-ROMs. CD-ROMs, you could do stuff that you couldn't yet do on the Internet. So we were starting to see stuff that looks like, oh, OK, digital comics. This is what it could look like. And I was getting super excited about that stuff. So when I had my first website, I never looked at it as promotion. In fact, I was like super snooty about that stuff. It's just like, you guys, you think the Internet is just to promote your work. Don't you understand? You can make things for this. You can create stuff that's like entirely designed for the Web. And, you know, that's that was the next 15 years of my life. I just went down this this rabbit hole. And that was, you know, pretty much my Waterloo, because of course I wasn't, I wasn't able to bring a lot of that stuff about, but that's, that's how I looked at it. And that's, that was true even before I was done with understanding comics, I was already completely sold on that. And then the web came along and I was like, okay, this is going to be huge. Give it five years. Cause I wanted bandwidth, right? It wasn't enough. I didn't want us I didn't want to load a tiny little three panel comic strip. I wanted to do something big. So I'm like, I'm just watching my my clock, you know, the whole time waiting. OK, give me more bandwidth. Give me more bandwidth. I believed in Moore's law. I knew it was coming. And then finally, in the late 90s, then, all right, now it's good. I've been launched my site. Can we take things back quite a ways? Uh, I'm thinking about whenever uh, I did this comic, X-Men Grand Design, and it, the 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 announcement came out for it, floating around on Twitter. And Kurt Busiek, uh, Busiek how, how do you say his last name? You got right the second time, Busick. Yeah, Busick. He he bitch slapped me on uh, Twitter. Was like, <laughs> it was like, boy, me and Scott McCloud spelled M C C L E O D. We did X Men Grand Design in the seventies, man. And he spent a bunch of pages from a fanzine where you guys took all the existing X Men material at that time yeah. and did like a really awesome like recapper. Uh, question is how much of that fanzine material is out there and how come uh, we don't see any reprints of that anywhere? Kurt and I have actually talked about it. We talked about like, you know, doing the like, you know, the Busick McLeod, the early years, which would have been like a bunch of fanzine illustrations, things like that. The thing that you saw, which was in Rockets Blast Comics Collector. Anyone remember that name? Um, and then and then also a comic, we did like a 24 page comic in college, we did three issues of a comic for a publisher that went belly up before it ever saw print. Um, and we did the 60 page Battle of Lexington, which was in high school, we did this comic where a bunch of Marvel superheroes beat the crap out of each other and destroy our town and our high school in the local library and, you know, it's Lexington, Massachusetts, not not uh, Kentucky. And um, yeah, we thought, oh, let's let's maybe we can reprint that someday. And, and Pow Biff Pops, which was the first Marvel and DC crossover officially sanctioned, which was for the Boston Pops uh, opening night. Saul Harrison was there, president of DC. We were 17 years old sitting there, you know, in our in our suits with the wide lapels because it's the 70s. 
is the weirdest thing. I designed some murals. I'd say that that one just seems like a dream. That's like some weird fever dream. We had a very weird youth, the two of us. Scott, you have my email. So if there are scans of these things that exist, I, I won't share them with anybody but the cafe bros. I'd love to well, read Well, the Pow Biff Pops, which, you know, guest stars Seiji Ozawa and Marvel and DC superheroes and was totally sanctioned and came, I think, before Superman versus Spider-Man. There were only uh, like a thousand or 10,000 copies. I've forgotten how many and however many weren't sold were burned. <laughs> <laughs> this thing, this thing should be the greatest collector's item in history, but uh, almost no one knows about it. Until now, <laughs> we're getting the word out. We're going to drive. Yeah, get the word out. Pow, Biff pops. Start your <laughs> engines, guys. <laughs> Um, Scott, I, I want to get into the Creator Bill of Rights a little bit, because I, I feel like it's going to inform a lot of questions about your work and, and your career. Um, can you give us kind of a, you know, describe that in a nutshell for, for viewers that are completely unfamiliar with that? Well, there's a lot going on in distribution, and we're talking like the mid-80s, late-80s. And a bunch of creators got together and they had a summit in Montreal. And this was like Dave Sim was one of the ringleaders. And you had... Frank Miller and Alan Moore and people like that were involved. Uh, and they had a follow-up call because they issued like this creative manifesto and I got a hold of this thing and I was like, oh, I can't make heads or tails of this. It's very, very complicated document. And so they had a follow-up summit in Northampton where the turtle guys were uh, just a year or so later. And they invited me, or I think they invited Bissette and Bissette invited me. Um, but whatever, I came with this thing. I said, hey, you know what? Let's just make it simple. Let's just have a bill of rights. Why don't we just say, these are the rights we're not going to sign away. If we got all the creators to sort of get together and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to sign a contract if we don't get to own the originals. If we don't have to you know, get to have control of stuff that we completely created. If we don't get a piece of the action of things we created. Even some of the independents didn't have that sort of thing. And everybody's like, okay, Scott, let's let's do it. And then we had like two days of arguing, like, uh, you know, the musical, the play 1776. It was basically that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people arguing. And I'm like Jefferson looking out the window, sad because everything got, you know, cut, whatever. Um, and then we issued the thing. And, you know, it didn't make much noise. You know, the thing to remember about the Creators Bill of Rights is like it came out. People were like, ha ha, you know, who cares? And image happened after that, but image didn't happen because of the bill. Image was going to happen one way or the other. But some of those guys talked about the Bill of Rights. I look back at it now. I don't see it as having necessarily started any kind of revolution. The thing about it is that if you look at it, it's a good snapshot of the kind of things we were worried about then. And in a lot of ways, it's, it also touches on a lot of the things that you know you can still be on the lookout for. Like some entrepreneur decides he's going to put you know, put together some kind of web venture and he wants people to sign this little contract with a click. Oh, don't worry, just scroll down and click yes. You know, and what are you doing? You're, you're signing away your rights forever. So it's like the issues didn't go away. But, but I guess all we managed to do was kind of, you know, put a little magnifying glass on the kinds of things that people should have been looking out for then and that they should still be looking out for, I think. I always thought of it as like a great document for 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 conscious competence. Like growing up when it when it was first came out, like I saw it as a kid. It was printed in a bunch of magazines and stuff, and it just reinforced the things that uh, you know that 
are possible in a world where there weren't really, you know, Mike Friedrich is like the one comic book agent running around at that time or something, and he ain't going to give some noob a shot. So it was great stuff to, to sort of have some, some knowledge about even existing or potentially being in a contract. It does yeah. feel like it should still be widely circulated for the contract reason, right? Like whenever you sit down to negotiate this contract or finalize it, address everything in this creator bill of rights like by all means you know sell some of them or license some of those rights uh to the publisher but be conscious of that and you know affix some sort of compensation to it because yeah. there's so many young cartoonists now we hear from a million of them asking these kinds of questions and it's it's funny that it isn't a bigger i feel like that should be a a bible type thing in the comics creator world uh, you know, Ed, you say you saw them in magazines when you were a kid. I mean, it should just be ingrained in all of us at this point. Like, if if you're going to publish my book, let's address these things. Yeah, it can. I think think of it as a. For me, it's more like a tuning fork. You know, it just like helps to tune people's attention to certain things. Uh, every every deal is different. Every creator is different. And there are, I mean, there is a place for things like work for hire. Like if you're working on something that somebody else created. And they just want you to, you know, letter a page or whatever, you know, when the movie comes out, you shouldn't necessarily <laughs> like be collecting a piece of, you know, whatever Warner Brothers has given them or whatever. I mean, there is a certain point as Siegel and Schuster, we're not going to have 10,000 people benefiting from a Superman movie. If, if there had been justice in the world, they would have been running the show and then they could have negotiated individuals, you know, with individuals. But um, yeah, I think, mm, yeah, it's yeah, I'm getting fuzzy. I'm just like I'm trying to think what the issues are now because the issues have changed a little, but I think the fundamentals are still there. They really are. And oh, and uh, the other thing is that the book publishers who are, have become very important, things like Scholastic and and um and First Second and whatnot, um they kind of do operate on a more equitable uh footing in the sense that, you know, like if there's a movie, I mean there there could easily be a movie the sculptor at this point, it's, it's currently under option and been renewed at Warner Brothers. We'll see. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's mine to benefit from. And then for a second benefits, you know, secondarily by book sales after the fact. But they they don't they don't walk away with movie rights. Yeah, these I mean, these conversations have to start somewhere. And so it's really easy yeah. when something like the Creators Bill of Rights or Understanding Comics comes around and spells out these things that we've had this maybe vague understanding of, but actually like define them clearly. And then in retrospect, you can kind of look at these things and say like, oh, well, that stuff's all obvious, but it wasn't obvious prior to that. A lot of people did come in with the idea of like, hey, I'm making a comic, I guess DC owns this, you know, and without understanding, you know, all these different rights that you actually do have that you have to sign away, whether you're doing it, you know, explicitly or implicitly. Well, that's kind of my career in a nutshell. I'm basically <laughs> Captain Obvious, you know, like because I'm I'm the guy who said the thing that was always in the back of your head until I actually said it. And then now, oh, oh, yeah, because a lot of people would say with understanding comics, it's just like, yeah, I sort of knew that, I guess, on some level, but I needed somebody to tell me to put it in so many words. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my my thing, I guess. And there's like a crystal clear like value to that, actually, you know, absolutely especially like uh, bringing other people who aren't a part of our little subculture into the game. You know, people like my, my, my mom loves understanding comics. She doesn't know the title of any of my comics. Yeah. 
That's great to hear. I love to hear about moms who love it. I like to hear about like the high school art teacher that told you that comics were shit and then you gave him a copy of the book and, and that, you know, like I love stuff like that. Yeah. The outreach stuff. That's that's always really nice to hear. Well, once you tie in like the bio tapestry, then all these people, you know, like my dad or whoever who looked down on comics all the time, I was like, hmm, okay, yeah, maybe <laughs> do this. Scott, can we talk about Zot uh, on, sure. within, within this frame of the Creator Bill of Rights and stuff? Because, uh, you know, like you own the copyright to that. It, it's, mm -hmm. seen, it's seen the light of day after Eclipse goes away. Uh, were you conscious yeah. of uh, copyright and all that stuff when you were pitching this thing? And and how did yeah. how did that manifest? Yeah, very much so. I mean, like there have been a lot of noise being made by people. You know, Frank Miller was making a lot of noise, and Neil Adams before him, uh, advocating for Siegel and Schuster and that kind of thing. Creators' rights was it was in the news. It was in the it was in the air, and for some people that that manifest as kind of a movement to to have to unionize comics workers, and you know I understood that on some level, but I also saw that cartoonists were always going to be kind of an autonomous bunch. We're all a bunch of loners and freelancers and whatnot. So that was sort of my filter on it, right? Um, so when I did Zot, I, the thing is, okay, I'm at college, I'm an art major, and I take some design classes. And one of the assignments is to make a resume and send it off to some people. I send it to DC and I get a job. I get a job at DC. I'm still in college. I got three weeks to go at Syracuse University, right? And, and I, I get an interview, I go down to New York, I get a job. So uh, right out of college, I worked at DC for a year and a half, but my dad died right after I got the job. So I'm living in Manhattan and, and I get sort of like, I was ready to think in turn, think slow, you know, think about maybe kind of moving up the rungs one at a time and maybe get some, maybe get some work inking backgrounds. And, but then after my dad went, I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go for it now. So I started working nights and weekends on a proposal. And I had like this giant proposal for Zot. And I figured, cause I'm at DC, the first one I'm going to send it, it's show it to is Dick Giordano, you know, right there, right there in the offices. You know, it's my it's my corporate album, alma mater, whatever. And, you know, he says, yeah, I, we might be able to do something. We're thinking of starting a kid's line or whatever. And um, and I was like, oh, but one thing uh, I expect to have the rights to this. And he's like, he just laughs. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't. I wish we could. You know, he's a sweet guy. We all we all love Dick. Uh, I wish we could. But, you know, no way, no way. Are they ever going to give you the rights to this thing? And I said, well, I really understand, but, you know, I'm going to walk. I show it to Archie Goodwin, um, sweetest guy in comics. Um, there were a lot of good people, you know, really, there were a lot of good people in comics. Archie was one of the best. Uh, he was running Epic. Um, he said they kind of already had something a little like this and what Jim Starlin was doing, you know, but he said he told me. Um, what was he said? He said he thought I was on to something, which is which is nice coming from Archie. Um, nicest rejection I ever got. I like and the comparison I, of Starlin to Zot, this like, uh, you know, comic about a, little like bit. a superhero uh, wanting to like slit his own wrist. <laughs> you know? It was a better comparison than the, than the NBC executive or whatever who said no to Star Trek because they already had Lost in Space. Remember that? <laughs> um, so then I, I put, put together a proposal for four different independent publishers. They were all interested and, and Eclipse was the one who... Um, had the best deal and could publish it sooner because I wanted to get my book out 
uh, before there was like a nuclear war or whatever. I was a very weird kid. And that's, I'm not joking. I was actually, I was very doom centered in those days. That was the 80s. Uh, that was the 80s. Yeah, it was 1984, the Reagan years. Um, so, uh, but, but I was looking very carefully at the contracts by myself. I didn't have a contract lawyer. I didn't have an agent, but I was just looking and I knew what to look for. And I figured out, yeah, well, this, the Kamiko deal was no good or whatever, or Pacific. I didn't like the first contract. Eclipse, I thought, had the best, best deal of the people I was looking at. Um, could have been Warp Graphics, actually. They had a pretty good deal. But, and I, and I like those guys. But um, it's really interesting uh, to think about the contract differences. Whenever you, we would hear stories when Kamiko went out of business or changed ownership, and then Matt Wagner's characters are caught up in, you know, legal entanglements as they sort yeah. through what was the creator ownership definition or, or you know, what, what did the contract say for that? Uh, so yeah. kind of interesting to see you distinguishing that at a time when all those companies seem like they had creator ownership deals from my limited perspective. So not exactly all like Vertigo. I would, you know, when I finally discovered the Vertigo, it's just like, well, you get copyright. Hey, it's like, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> There's something missing from this deal, you know? To the people at home, man, be beware of that 50, 50 partnership, man. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah. instant stalemate. If uh, the person who has other 50% doesn't want to do what you want to do. Right. And even if you don't have a, agent you can still get a contract lawyer you can still get somebody to actually look at the contract you know for a fee and yeah it'll cost a little but it'll cost you much more if 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 you have no way of knowing what the contract should contain it's going to cost you a lot more in the long run so you you pick eclipse with zot and that's a yeah. that's a really interesting time i am not even reading comics at that point you know i come in in the late 80s and stuff so it's a long time you know like in hindsight is how i look at these companies what is the comic scene like at that point i mean eclipse was publishing a lot there must have been a great energy that like things are changing and this is exciting the new wave of comics what were you getting you know the vibe from the comic scene at that time did you have peers that you were close with you know what was going on yeah well, I liked, I liked a bunch of the things that Eclipse, my favorite was, and still is to this day, Larry Martyr's Tales of the Bean World. Uh, I just absolutely love that to pieces. Um, the independent scene, the thing then is, you know, in retrospect, I can see how much just the general economy had an effect on it. I came out of college right at the end of, a, of an economic downturn and things are, they're going up, right? It matters. And so the independent market is starting to blossom because there's just a little bit more money in the system and it's growing. Um, and there'd be ups and downs, of course, but, but it was a time of growth. The one thing about me, like in terms of the content, I was inspired by a lot of the artists who were around, but what I saw in people like the Hernandez brothers or Dan Klaus, which was some of my favorite stuff at the time, I saw a whole new way of making comics but it still reacted a little to the old, the old way. It still felt a little like it was kind of saying we're not superheroes. And then a lot of the stuff on my side of the fence, like at Eclipse and other companies like that, a lot of that stuff was like, we're superheroes, but different. And it kind of hurt a little that my comic was that, right? Because I didn't think of myself as a superhero guy anymore. I thought I was, I was reading Raw Magazine. I would, you know, like I was, I was looking at Japanese comics and European comics and old 20th century American comics, all this avant-garde stuff, but here I was doing a superhero. And so I felt like 
not every, surely we can do something more than that. I liked what they did in Japan where there was fishing comics and, and Mahjong comics and, you know, like comics for every conceivable interest. That's what I wanted to see. But here I was doing the superhero. So I felt like we were kind of stuck a little that even the people who weren't doing superheroes were kind of doing anti-superheroes. And so it was kind of derivative by omission. And then guys like me were kind of doing like baby steps, just barely out of the crib stuff. And I thought, no, there has to be something more. Um, so I was very restless in those days. Understanding comics is the product of that restlessness. Because while I was working on Zot, all those ideas were kind of bubbling up in my head and they had nowhere to go. So when I finally came out with understanding, it was kind of exploding, saying comics can be anything, anything, anything. That was, that was kind of like that, that, that um, cathartic scream. <laughs> Because because comics were this one thing for me. It's so fascinating reading the the, the later issues of Zot, yeah, uh, and seeing you experiment with things that you then kind of crystallize and talk about and explain and build a rubric around in understanding comics. It's it's yeah. you almost need both things, man, to just like here's the companion piece to give you many more examples of the things that are being talked about in uh, understanding comics. Hmm. How how were you finding manga at that time? Like early early '80s, not a lot of manga. Uh, at least it doesn't seem like a lot of manga was accessible here in the states. Yeah. How, what led you to that? How 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 were you finding those things? Well, yeah, Europe came before, right? You know, because heavy metal. I think a lot for kids my age, kids sixty, uh, sixty one, no, sixty one, no. Um, yeah, for a lot of us, it was like the European stuff came first, right? So Japan was still this unknown territory. It was in college, I saw a couple of comics. Uh, a friend of mine had been to Japan and brought back like a little tiny, like Senpai Shirado volume, I think it was. Rest in peace. And then, hmm? Rest in peace. He just passed away. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and then um, a Tezuka, like one of these Tezuka collections. And I was like, okay, this is new. And right away, I was like, okay, my brain is like really buzzing. So when I get the job at DC, there are three blocks from Bookskino Kania. And the whole second floor is almost nothing but comics. And they weren't shrink wrapping them yet. That happened later. So on my lunch hour, I would go down and I would read. And by read, I mean, I would go right to left. I didn't read Japanese but I go right to left panel by panel by panel. That was my lunch hour. I, I remember I would go to DC. I was living in Manhattan. I would go to DC with this little sandwich that I could eat in like four minutes to give me as much time as possible to like run over to books, Kino Kenia and just read and read. I was doing exactly what the Japanese businessmen do, right? You know, like reading on the train and all that's, that's what I was doing. I was stand reading. That's what they call it. And, and the storytelling was so clear in some of these that I could tell what was going on. And like that fascinated me. It's like the, if the visual storytelling is that good, okay, the te their technology of storytelling is that good. I got to learn from this. In fact, I was going back to editors at DC and I was like shoving these things in their faces and say, look, 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 we should be doing this. And they were like, yes, yeah, Scott, that's, it's just different in Japan. They'll never, Japanese comics are never going to be big in America. Forget it. Um, except Joey Cavalieri. God bless him. I love that guy. He, I met him, I like, I knew him at the office, 
But then I'm at Bookskino Kania one day and I bump into Joey and it turns out he's been doing the same thing. We start talking and talking and talking about manga and how important manga is. We walk out, we're walking out of the store with this big stack of books. And I'm like halfway back to DC. I'm like, oh, fuck, I didn't pay for these. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm running back. And I'm like putting the books in front of the clerk and said, I forgot to pay for these. And like, and, and, and I remember him just looking at me and looking at the books and saying, oh, you are very honest. He <laughs> was very impressed. But um, so I started figuring out what they were doing. I started figuring out all these techniques and all that stuff is what went into Zod. Actually, a lot of the things you saw in Zot weren't so much pre-understanding, but post-manga. That makes right? so much sense here in that. Scott, did you go to the, were you in the game uh, when there was that fateful uh, San Diego Comic-Con early 80s? You see the photos of Tezuka and Monkey Punch and Go Nagai and Kirby yeah. and stuff. Like, were you there and did you grab anything? Did you, any stories from that time? That was the one, that was the Comic-Con right before Wow. I started going right before I missed Tezuka. I did meet Mon Monkey Punch later because he came by uh, Artist Alley and was curious about web comics. Uh, <laughs> it's very cool. That late. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. I love um, you describing the storytelling as technology because I always think of language as technology and obviously understanding comics. It's comics as language. Uh, so making that, you know, yeah. it's like some math <laughs> associated property or something. Mutative, yeah. This technology is is really interesting. Uh, that, it is true. That's, that's I'll, I'll be thinking about this week. That's a good insight. We got to set that aside. Yeah, it's the commutative property. It's like absolutely is is language is a technology and comics is a language. Yeah. Did you read um, Frederick Schott's Manga Manga book around that mm -hmm. time? Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. And Schott was one of my guides. Um, so he gave me names. Sometimes I would come across one of these untranslated books. They didn't have the name of the creator in English. They often did. They often did have the name right there in the back of the book in English. But uh, some of them didn't. And it was only because of Schott that I was able to ID some of these guys or to have some kind of uh, uh, context for, for who they, they were. So he was enormously helpful in the early days, yeah. There's that that book has aged so well, I think um, mm -hmm. we recently read it and talked to him, yeah. uh, I guess, last year. Uh, and I was surprised by how how insightful the book remains. Yeah, um, he really got a lot right, uh, right out of the gate. And your description of like, you know, the businessman reading like this, um, it reminds <laughs> me of him describing scanning is how those books are read, where it's like, you know, one and a quarter second or something per spread. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interactive in a way that American comics, I don't think are this, you know, they have their own qualities, but it's certainly different than that sort of like, I'm just reading spreads, you know, one and a half seconds at a time. Well, uh, also they have a good. vertical cascade quality to them, right? They tend to cascade down, right? Which makes a lot of sense when you think about your language again. This way when, when in things like guided view and like comicsology, I kind of wish sometimes they would just like just go down and down and down that's and that goes back to the whole web scrolling thing as well that was influenced by that but you know the thing is that that all of those techniques i identified like 10 different like crucial techniques that were happening in japanese comics after a while i realized they were all the same thing and they were all ways to make the audience feel as if they were not watching the story but they were inside the story 
So think about it. Think about like like motion, right? We we tell you what I called subjective motion. That instead of like, oh, look, there's Superman. He's flying through the air, and there's like a drawing of Superman and a drawing of building, and then there's lines showing you where he's going. It's like, no, screw that. No, I want to be Superman. So it's like your Superman. Superman is drawn like just ordinarily, and then the entire city is like swooshing by him. Well, that's how Superman sees it when he flies, right? It's like it's like the whole world is in motion. You're standing still. That's how they did motion. Okay, that makes you feel like you're the moving object. That makes you feel like you're you're participating, not watching. Well, same thing when you have those pages where, you know, somebody's lying on the grass and you see the trees overhead, and then you see the chirping birds, and then you see the stuff on the lake. And once again, that's a way of making you feel like you're the one viewing the scene from the inside of the scene or all of those emotional effects they have where all this stuff is like like gathering around a head or like you know you know or or you're you're nauseous and the whole background is kind of fuzzy that's making you feel like you are experiencing it not watching somebody experience it all of those things add up to the same basic motif that you are the participant you are experiencing the story. You're inside the story, not watching the story. And that was the thing that bound Japanese comics together and made them distinct from what was happening in the Franco-Belgian stuff in Europe and what was happening in the North American style. Now, Zot Eclipse Comics and, and Eclipse worked with Viz on some of the first manga adaptations here yeah. in the States, you know, uh, you know, not talking about uh, barefoot again and and that earlier edu, edu comics stuff uh i don't even know if i have a question about this but <laughs> you know i connect you with manga in a lot of ways you were there with with eclipse did you see this stuff early was there anything that kind of came through the offices that didn't quite make it to translation for some reason that sort of blew your mind anything about uh your your uh relationship with manga uh while uh at eclipse torrent smith story anything yeah. like that I didn't see the stuff coming through the offices because they were in California. I was still in New England in those days. But um, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of the stuff that came through Eclipse, it wasn't quite the stuff I was most interested in. I want to see Cyborg 009. I wanted to see, uh, you know, uh, Dororo or whatever. I want to see the Tezuka stuff. Uh, but they did publish some interesting stuff. My the, My the Psychic Girl, which, by the way, was going to be a movie with music by Sparks. That never happened. <laughs> Finally, now we have a movie with music by Sparks, and it's just <laughs> weird. Um, they had uh, some of the samurai stuff, but it was the later samurai stuff, which to me looked more Western. They were publishing a lot of stuff that looked more Western, you know, more like American comics, which you can imagine, like me, I was like, no, no, come on, give me the hardcore stuff. Um, but still, they, you know, some cool stuff. Appleseed was really cool. Um, and yeah, so they were part of it, but a lot of it by then, a lot of the fans in the know, they were getting like this, what we called the scanlations, which in those days was scan or not. Yeah, scan like the photocopies, photocopied translations were hand translated things that fans were just doing for each other, sending out in like APAs. Remember APAs, you know, like, Hammer, you know, where you would you'd Xerox a bunch of things and collate them and send them to the members and they'd, they'd send you $10 at the end of the year. It just it was so inefficient in those days. Um, that's how a lot of that stuff reached the, the a lot of the hardcore fans. You mentioned Appas, so uh, that opens up 
the frying pan, the oh, app that, that, that you uh, ran. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I had done an app as, you know, when I was younger, we've looked at like Frank Miller's work, you know, from, yeah. from one of those. Um, what was your experience with that like? Uh, what do you remember from that? Why, why did you start that? Well, right after Zot was canceled the first time, I think even before Destroy came out, maybe, and I was really into mini comics. I suggested getting a whole bunch of these, like this growing community of writer artists together to start talking to each other and start like offering each other like critiques. Because I, this is what I did. Like when I started doing Zot, I got a bunch of my friends to tell me how my work sucked. Essentially, I, I really felt like, hey, if I'm not going to have the old school Mort Weisinger, super nosy editor, right? If I'm going to have all this control, then with great power comes great responsibility. Listen to Spidey. Like you gotta, you gotta be ready to get a bunch of your friends to tell you that your stuff sucks because otherwise, how would you ever know if you don't have like that real strong arm editor? So I did that and I thought, hey, everybody could benefit from this. Let's make an app. Let's make one of these little things where, where we all send out this little photocopied magazine to each other, essentially telling each other that our work sucks um, and exactly how to fix it, right? And then because you have complete control, you have power, you, you can ignore it or take the advice if you like, but you say, thank you very much, sir. May I have another? You just like you're polite about it, right? Unfortunately, not everybody was as thick skinned as I was. Not everybody was as interested in going to the, the hot place. See that they, I called it the frying pan because the idea was go to the frying pan of self-criticism so you don't wind up in the fires of self-delusion, <laughs> right? It worked a little, it worked a little, but mostly it just became a kind of community thing where a bunch of people met each other. Um, in fact, that's how I got to know Peter Laird. Um, and that's, you know, uh, that, you know, and Kevin Eastman was part of that. And the frying pan actually was one of the reasons probably that I got invited to that summit where we wrote the Creators Bill of Rights. So it did create a community. But in those days, I didn't care about community. I just cared about the panel. I just cared about making better comics. That's all I thought about night and day. I was staying up late. I was just like, my nose was this far from the drawing board. I just thought if only we could all better understand what we were screwing up on and just like tell each other and, and help each other, we could all make better comics. But that was me. Everybody else was like, hey, I can network and meet people and like have fun. And after a while, it's like, oh, OK, fine, fine. Have fun, meet people, whatever. <laughs> can we talk about Destroy for a little bit, please? Yeah, uh, Scott, what was in the air at, at, at that time? Because you could look at that comic and just assume that it's sort of parodying the image comics that come out years later. Uh, <laughs> what, what was around? It, it, it is like uh, the like first it, image comic. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Rob Liefeld has all but told me that like, yeah, oh, yeah, I was swiping destroy left and right. He loved it. He, he was kidding. But I mean, like he but he he loved that stuff. Yeah. Did you see stuff moving in a direction or and and that's an answer to it? Or did you just want to have some fun? No, I definitely saw stuff moving in a direction, but also like it was partially I was trying to like set up a lightning rod to catch that energy in the air. The other thing was I was kind of trying to expunge my own demons because remember I had that weird relationship with superheroes when I was working on Zot. Like I was working on a superhero, but at the same time, I didn't want to feel like comics were just superheroes. 
right? I like superheroes. I want com I want there to be great superhero comics, but I, I, it still bugged me that so much of comics was still superheroes and there could be so much more you could do with comics. So I thought, okay, let's take care of this once and for all. I'm going to face down my nemesis. I'm going to like try to do the ultimate superhero comic. I'm probably going to fail, right? But I can get out of my system knowing I gave it my all that I created something that was like just super exciting, but also kind of ridiculous because there was all this ups, you know, one upsmanship of like, oh yeah, well, I can destroy a whole world. No, I can destroy a hundred worlds. And it's like, I thought, oh, come on, you guys. Everybody's trying to battle with Kirby. Kirby's king of the hill. Kirby's always going to be king of the hill. But, you know, until you go face to face with Kirby, at least, you know, you, you got to get out of you. You got to, you got to, you got to feel like you gave it your all. So I gave it my all. And the other thing was super boxers. That was the other very important thing was there had been this Marvel comic by Ron Wilson. I think it was super boxers. And everybody would say, this is nothing but senseless violence. And I was like, what, what senseless violence? I want to see that. I want to see a comic that's nothing but senseless violence. That sounded radical. That sounded exciting. And then I finally got it. It was like, it had story, it had plot, it had characters. And I said, oh, come on. So I thought, all right, if, if, Super boxers is in senseless violence. I'm going to create a comic that's nothing but senseless violence. And that was the other, that was the other important thing. So I did it. There's no way I, I didn't even get close to Kirby, right? Kirby's still king of the hill, but I got the Kirby out of my system, right? I expunged it enough that now I had done my therapy. It was my primal scream therapy. And then I could, maybe I could go in different directions with my comics, uh, you know, so it was healthy. It was a healthy thing. Man, senseless violence comics. Be careful what you wish for. Like <laughs> at what point in the 90s are you tapping out going, yeah, I don't I don't want to see more senseless violence <laughs> comics. Yeah, Alan, Alan Moore thought I basically invented the 90s, you know, like yeah. from his point of view. It's such a perfect, uh, it's such a perfect comic in so many ways, like being that oversized format, it feels like design-wise, it's a perfect vessel for the contents. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something that a lot of cartoonists, we all, a lot of us do it now, you know, designing comics is so much better now than it was decades ago, but that yeah. was an object. Like you, you made that thing. It started as the design of the pro of the piece itself. Oh, that's a good yeah. question. What, what's, uh, what was the conversation with you and uh, Dean Mullaney, Cat Ironwood about, uh, <laughs> about asking for a big ass book like that? Well, they were sweethearts. They, they were very supportive. It was a one-off after all. It wasn't, you know, like it was going to cost a chunk of money. We'd probably make it back. Maybe we'd make a lot because it was around the time of the black and white boom was just starting and all. And it didn't make that much money. But uh, the retailers for years, like for 10 years after retailers would meet me and they're just like, that book destroy. Oh man, do you understand what a pain in the ass that was? <laughs> you know, like none of our shelves fit it. There's no place we could put it. Oh man, uh, I got to tell you every once in a while we talk about reprinting Destroy and I'm like, I will reprint that book, but only if it can be bigger. <laughs> I want it, I want it to be even bigger, like twice the trim size. And instead of the cover with all the words on it, I want to just have a giant screaming face in like neon, co contrasting neon colors. <laughs> well, I'm ready for the artist edition of that thing, especially if the originals are even bigger. That's goddamn right. Put that one on my dream list for artist <laughs> editions. You know, I, I think it was Evan Dorkin said he broke into comics with 
uh, with uh, Destroy, he rolled up a copy of it and broke into a comic book, <laughs> which is kind of a good segue into The Sculptor, which is like another book where oh, like yeah. design is important and where you could like break into a comic shop with it also, it's sort of like brick. Yeah, uh, it's a doorstop, definitely a brick, yeah. Actually, yeah, I got to say the German edition of Destroy, they actually have the, the cover has this raised surface with the, like the logo is like raised and it, it feels even more brick-like, like it's got this brick pattern on it and you can feel it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Sculptor, yeah, the art object thing. I mean, remember Mr. Web Comics here, right? So a big part of Sculptor was like, after I kind of figured out the ways in which print is kind of broken, I still think print is kind of broken because I think the page is a technology that kind of gets in the way sometimes. Like you have to play to the page, right? And But sometimes by playing to the page, it becomes a little static uh, because we look for balance, right? You put panel one and panel one's kind of leaning one way. And so eh, maybe panel three, it can be kind of leaning this way. And then it can kind of, you know, I can kind of counterbalance that. And there's some spot blacks here. There should be some spot blacks there. And then in the end, you have this rectangle. And inside the rectangle, things are nice and balanced. But balance, balance is kind of death. You know, balance is you're done now. Balance is, is a picture. Balance is you can hang it on your wall. And there's some problems with that to me. One of the reasons I like Tezuka is because there was something random about his pages. There's this, this, like the panels were kind of thrown down. And you start to realize that if you're a little arbitrary in the way you throw down the panels, the composition is always interesting. It may not be balanced, but why do you want to be balanced? When a, when a person is on the move, if you're walking or you're running, what is that? You're falling. This Laurie Anderson talks about this in one of her songs. Walking is falling. You fall, then you stop yourself from falling. Then you start falling, and then you stop yourself from falling, right? So if you have a composition that's kind of tumbling down the page, then it has a kind of forward momentum to it. So what if we kind of forget about the page? And this is what I would do with Sculptor. I laid out 40 pages at a time in a single Photoshop document, this giant document. And I would edit it like a movie where I could take panels out and put panels in. And I had this workspace in between these rows of pages where I could kind of play with them and put them in. And I just thought about panel to panel. I just tried to create a kind of panel to panel flow so that you're always thinking, you always want to know what happens in the next panel. And you're always kind of like being propelled into the next panel. And the, pan the pages don't really look unbalanced or anything. But the point is, I wasn't thinking in terms of the balance. I was thinking in terms of that forward momentum, that thing where every panel you read makes you just think, OK, next, OK, next. Okay, next, you're falling and stepping, you're falling and you're stepping. Even people who don't like the story, because you know the, it's, it's a love-hate book, right? People love it and hate it. it. It's very split. But the, the comment that I heard over and over, a lot of people told me this, was that they read it in one sitting. And the thing is 500 pages. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I didn't use a lot of words per page, but still, still, that says something. That means that at the very least, I did that thing where you just kind of have to keep going. And that to me is about transcending the page. That's like accepting, okay, comics is broken in this little way where the page imposes a technological limitation that can mess us up. And I think often does. If I can blow past that and just think in terms of a, of a river of panels, maybe I can keep us turning the pages. 
maybe I can keep it moving forward. That's a really interesting concept in a lot of different directions. Uh, the, the, the pages technology is something I think about a lot, because mm -hmm. if you think of like the book as technology, it's no longer the best uh, technology for what it was designed to do. Yet mm -hmm. we cling to it or we don't even question it. I think in a lot of cases, um, uh, Chester Brown comes to mind with the way he draws yeah. individual panels. And then, you know, like you'll see reprints and they're arranged differently. The page layouts are different. <laughs> Um, I like I like all of these ideas uh, in terms of thinking, trying to think of pages differently because it is it is a design problem for even if you're doing web comics, you know, a lot of times those end up in some sort of collection. So then you're confronted with how do I translate this version into a right. version? Well, that's why that's why I don't believe in repurposing. That's I from the very beginning, very very beginning. Um, it's why a lot of my early web comics are. You can barely look at them now because they're all pixely and crappy looking. I did. I actually drew them at seventy-two dots per inch. My first web comics. It was the <laughs> dumbest thing ever. I, but I was like, no, I'm a purist. Damn it! But I don't believe in repurposing. It's like you design it for the screen and you design it for the page, and whichever you pick, you gotta you gotta commit. And almost no one does that because it's you know economically it's very hard to do that. You know, it's like now nah, it. it you, you do them in pages because it's going to be printed eventually and then you have a Kickstarter and, you know, I get it. I, I understand people, they want to, they want to reach people. They want to, they want to make some money in the end. They want to be able to keep supporting their career. This is the solution people arrived at, but, but it breaks my heart a little when something is designed not for the way that it's being displayed because, oh, well, later I want to be able to do this thing with it. Like you mentioned Chester, the other thing about Chester, when he was, doing a lot of these comics where he would just do it one panel at a time and it kind of paste it up is that, yeah, that just flows into any technology. It's, it's technology. Um, what's the word? Uh, ambivalent, not ambivalent. It's agnostic. Agnostic. Thank you. It's, te it's techno agnostic, right? It's like, he doesn't even care about the technology. He's just saying, no, this is just the shit, whether it's on a screen or on a, on a page, this is the essential atomic unit is the panel. And that's why a lot of his panels were the same size. Right, because then it flows. Scott, may I argue, uh, try to convince you of these different formats and their virtue. Mm. Um, I, I tend to think like we've given a lot of this power to the reader, to our audience, to choose how they want to read it, whether it's on their phone or yeah. iPad or paper or whatever, comic books or collections, all of that stuff. And uh, like you say, you know, with a lot of creators, like I do want as many people to read my work as possible, but also yeah. like I kind of trust them. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised meeting comic book readers, uh, at least of my work, where they'll notice things that I think I did that for me. And then you go to a signing and sure enough, they all noticed it. And it's yeah. really kind of like made me think this is great. It's almost collaborative if it's up to them as to they know how they want to read it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what works for them. And certainly there are examples of, you know, formal experimentation that like this will only work if you have an infinite canvas or this is designed yeah. for print. And I love a lot of that stuff, but I do think a lot of this stuff is flexible enough, you know, to, it's a good story, right? If it's mm -hmm. a good story, you know, read it on your phone, read it in paper, you know, read it yeah. in what works for you. No, I think that's a good point. I, you know, like, it's like, you know, I go back and forth on this one. I mean, this, um, there's in web design, we have this, the, the notion of responsive design, which is really the, the readers in control and, and the, 
you know, is it on a phone? Is it on a big screen? Uh, it's going to change. It's going to basically change its shape. To some extent, you can design it so that it's very amenable to that. Like we were talking about Chester's comics. If you're just designing it one panel at a time and they're all the same size, <laughs> go to town. Like you can view that in almost any, any way you like. Uh, but what if like Alan Moore, when he was doing Watchmen with Dave Gibbons, he had all of these ideas for the ways in which the panels, the whole tapestry interacted with each other. Well, we definitely wanna have an avenue for people to create in that, in that form too. And if let's say, you, you were loading Watchmen one panel at a time on a screen, or like even, even like a one row at a time on a phone screen, let's say horizontal. Okay, hey, that gets most of it, right? Most of it actually fits. It's on a nine grid. It's pretty easy to do that. Only once in a while will you have to scroll up or down some big panel. It would work, except you, know, you and I know that you would lose a lot of what Moran Gibbons had in mind in terms of the, the whole work. The one thing about comics that's very different from TV and movie, movies and prose and whatnot is that the shape matters more in comics than almost anything else. You can design a comic so that it's amenable to that kind of responsive design so that the individual viewers in a lot of different contexts can reshape it to their, to their needs. And that's a perfectly legitimate choice. I just wanna always make sure that there's a place for those for whom the shape is everything like a Chris Ware page, those giant Chris Ware pages. Mm -hmm. Those things are, they're masterpieces. And, um, and they can only exist if all the parts are, are present when you're viewing the whole, you know, like all of them are talking to each other because it's more than just from panel to panel, which is funny because that contradicts what I just said about the sculptor when I designed it, where it really was panel to panel. Chris Ware is one of the, the first people who, who got me thinking about the ideas of, of repurposing in a different way than we've talked about uh, so far. Uh, and that is stuff like uh, repackaging Sunday strips, comic strips and things like that. And how you hear about these reverential, important comic strips. But then when you try to read a whole book of Crazy Cat, it's mm -hmm. a little bit daunting. And it was yeah. in Eclipse comic, once again, Floyd Farland, uh, the, the, the Chris Ware <laughs> teenage comic, where he, uh, you know, these comics were in, I guess, maybe the Daily Texan or something. Uh, I think that's right, yeah. At, at, uh, printed at one page per week, broadsheet, you know, tabloid size, something like that. And uh, there's like a little note in there where he's pretty much all but begging the reader, you got to read one of these per week, read one page <laughs> a week. And then uh, with that idea in mind, I'm like, you're crazy. You don't read comics that way. And then you read it and you see what he means. And then when I started doing those reprints of, you know, take your pick really. Uh, and, and, you know, you try to read a whole book's worth of uh, little Nemo's. It's a little dicey. It's a little yeah. tough. It is. Yeah. They were, they, they really were meant to land on the coffee table or, uh, or the, the kitchen table, probably more likely uh, on a Sunday um once a week and and alongside all the other stuff too right people design for the context they really do it's sometimes unconsciously sometimes they don't even think about it um and sometimes an opportunity can last for decades before somebody plucks it out of the air you know innovation is you know it's backwards compatible you know like the wheels on suitcases is is my my bugaboo it's just like you know how long have we had suitcases how long have 
have there been uh, wheels? <laughs> you know, like I was in Germany in like the late 80s when when Neil told me, Neil Gaiman told Ivy and me uh, that, um, you know, like, hey, you know, like I've been traveling a lot and I thought maybe I should look and see what the stewardesses are and, the, you know, the stewards on airplanes, what kind of suitcases they have. And I noticed they had wheels on them. So I started getting suitcases with wheels. Look at this. And I'm like, that was the late 80s. For like all those decades, we couldn't get, you know, like, so, so sometimes a solution is just sitting there. It's just as plain and obvious as anything. And it takes somebody to just pluck it out. Like Will Eisner did when the comics, the long form comics that were being published were all just basically collections of strips. And he was like, you have a whole page here. We'll do something with it. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy who, you know, at the dawn of like film could have moved his camera, <laughs> yeah. but didn't, you know? <laughs> and there were a lot of those guys or the, or the early TV shows that were just filmed radio plays. Yeah, that always happens. And that was what I was on the lookout when, when the web came along too. You know, that was, I was like, okay, I know those guys are going to be there. I know those attitudes are going to be there. Can I blow past them? I tried, I kind of failed. But, you know, like I, I at least I put some cracks in the in the wall and it may take some kid who's like 10 years old right now to, to come back and blow past it in 10 years when they figure out how to do it. So speaking of inventions like uh, wheeled suitcases, <laughs> you're the inventor of 24 hour comics. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about how that came about and also what do you think of what that has evolved into? I mean, <laughs> I read an interview for this in Comic Book Rebels. And you were talking about how like it was a dare and I don't know, 15 other cartoonists had 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 answered the challenge. I mean, now it might be a hundred thousand cartoonists have answered the challenge. Tell us about 24 hour comics. I don't know if it's a hundred thousand, but it's definitely way past 10,000. I think at this point um, that might've even been true before Nat Gertler did 24 hour comics day. Cause he was, he was the one who came up with the idea for the day back in 2004. Um, yeah. Well, as you, as you mentioned, it was a dare, it was a dare to Steve Bissett. Okay. um and uh you know because i had seen how quick he was at sketching at stores and things and i was like steve come on you could do a comic in a day why are you so slow at everything else <laughs> and so but i could only get him to do it if i promised to do it i wound up doing mine at the end of the month right before the deadline uh and then he missed the deadline he did i always joke that he did his own on what was it october i think it was like august 36th i think <laughs> is when he finally did his um Another fun little trivia is that both of us did a cover in addition to the 24 pages so that we could one-upsmanship each, you know, like, so I could be like, ha, I got one more page than you, but we both had the same idea because I didn't show him mine until he did his. That was, that, that was the deal. So yeah, it was just a, it was just a, it was a dare, but the thing is that Steve is the one who sent it to Dave Sim, sent it to Kevin and, and Peter, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, sent it to uh, Neil, and they all did theirs and that's that's what happened there is that because they all did theirs and especially dave who put in the pages of cerebus and told other people you know about this thing told other people about the dare uh in fact i think for the first couple of years everybody thought dave had, had created it um but uh but that's when it started to spread and that's when it became just like this thing and there had already been like you know, 36 people in Austin or whatever had done it one day, even before the the uh, 24 hour comics day came along. But then that came along and then we have like, you know, 100 people in Malaysia and then it's like, you know, it became international. 
you know, it's, it's definitely petered out, I think, in recent years. But, um, but the thing about it, I do recommend it. The only two caveats, number one, have a designated driver. <laughs> don't don't like go into town and do this with a group of your friends and then drive home because you know you've been up for 24 hours i don't i don't want anyone's blood on my hands that was nat's nat's inside he said nope always have a designated driver and and uh oh yeah number two don't do it if you have tendonitis yeah for christ's sake don't ruin your hands over this other than that other than that if your hands are healthy and you're not going to get in a car crash i really think it's a good experience just see to draw 24 pages in a day and like i always say some people treat it as a minimalist experiment oh how little can i put in a page to do that many pages i look at it as a maximalist experiment it's like if you figure six panels per page okay that's like what 12 minutes 12 minutes a panel if I, no that's five panels a page whatever 10 minutes a panel 10 minutes a panel how much can you draw in 10 minutes? You put down a pen right now on a piece of paper and you've got 10 minutes, you can actually draw quite a lot. You can draw a lot in 10 minutes. All you have to do is just don't stop and think. Keep right. going. Because if you don't think, if you just, if your hand, usually our, our hand, our, uh, usually our brains work faster than our hands, right? Usually by the time you've drawn that page, you've already thought of 10 more things and you're never, ever going to finish them all. This is the one time when your hand's moving faster than your brain. You're just like, I don't know what the next panel is, and I'm already drawing it. Oh, no. Right? So you got to, what do you do? You reach into your subconscious. And that's when you pull out the, that's when the demons come out, especially at two in the morning, right? <laughs> and that's, and, and that's how you unlock it. It's like, it's like dropping acid or something. It's just, it's really a mess. And like, I know a lot of guys, they event by two in the morning, they're doing the, the white cow in the snowstorm or whatever. They're kind of trying to get, you know, catch up, but, but it's really cool to, to have to, to have to revert to that creative backup generator of the subconscious. I, I realize like a lot of your work was kind of what has been kind of like looking at the sort of baggage and bad habits that, you know, maybe like just like the comics art form has carried with and, and getting rid of that. And then the 24 hour was kind of dealing with that on an individual basis, like helping an individual artist get rid of their personal baggage that gets in the yeah. way. I, I was just thinking about uh, the stuff that comes later as potentially being part of the 24-hour comic uh, legacy would be like the the James Kachalka arguments about craft is dead and things like that because the idea is basically yeah. make some goddamn comics yeah, yeah it's really interesting to see like generation two of 24-hour comics because yeah. I was thinking of Boulet uh, okay. the French cartoonist who yeah. is just this virtuoso in ink and I think he was doing one every year he might still do one every year uh, and he's just phenomenal like you look at it and think there's no way that's 24 hours uh, but you know that's what you get whenever it reaches a wide enough survey of artists that uh you know people have these different skill sets that they can bring to it and yeah boule boule is like mobius reincarnated he's he's definitely got that he's got the gift um i should also mention david chelsea also did one has done one every year i think for quite a while but boule yeah he has that that thing where the 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 pen hits the paper and it just goes and it's Let, solid let's talk about him for a minute in the kind of web comics discussion mm -hmm. setting so my understanding of him is he's kind of a traditional European cartoonist, you know, doing laborious kind of graphic album art and gets intrigued by web comics and the idea of putting his comics online. But he only has a little bit of time because he's this working artist. So he starts whatever that time is and he makes a comic and that time puts it online. 
And of course, slowly but surely that sort of becomes what we all know. The reason I know him is from this <laughs> digital comics that, that grow out of, I guess, an interest in what are web comics? What can I do with web comics? And I think one thing he did was connected with an audience in a way that maybe the spend a year on a book is a different experience than spend my hour, post it and uh, get instant feedback. I wonder, yeah. uh, you know, your experience with web comics, were there any surprises along the way like that? Uh, unanticipated things that you were like, oh, this is what web comics can really do or the power of web comics. Yeah, well, one of the surprises was that I was kind of hardcore, like, or um, what's the word? I was very limited in terms of my idea of animation. I was like, kind of like, no animation, damn it. It's like, no, it's all about the static image. And then I realized, no, if it's cycled, if it's like a cyclical animation, like an animated GIF that's on a loop, um, still works, right? Because because the thing is, okay, let's say, yeah, and this, uh, uh, Kat Garza did this early on, and there were a bunch of artists who did this, but Boulay did it most beautifully. Okay, everybody's going to pause the video right now. Check out our old Toyota was fantastic by Boulay. If you want to see some beautiful looped images, um, uh, just riding in a car and the lights going by, you know, the, the lights going by the windows of the car. But um, what I discovered with things like that is that, you know, you got panel one, panel two, panel three. Okay. All right. Just imagine them now. One, two, three. And here's one is static and three is static, but number two is animated. Okay. If it's an animated loop and it represents a process, like the hands of a clock going around or, or rain falling or something like that. And if two comes before, it comes after one and come, I, you know, I just realized, I think my image is reversed. Just reverse the image if I'm going right. We're, we're going manga. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, one, two, three. Um, if so long as the animated loop represents a span of time that takes place after one and before three, it still represents a steady state. And I saw a lot of people using this, this technique where animation is everywhere, but it's still it's still comics because it's still a temporal map. Because, I mean, anyway, comics don't even represent an instant in time anyway. If you got a word balloon there or if you got like swoosh lines and somebody's moving some limb or something and there's lines over, you're still representing a span of time anyhow. You're just doing it, you're doing it with animation. But that, that works. That's comics. Uh, whereas if it's like click here to see a little movie, then it's like, nah, come on, cut that out. Just don't, don't do that. No more Watchmen motion comics, please. <laughs> Scott, is your, is your Twitter feed a comic? <laughs> uh, it is when, well, it has comics in it. Uh, if I sometimes I'll have like a, here's a picture of this thing and then this thing and then this thing and then it's actually is a sequence. Yeah, but um, now it's got to be the sequence has to be pictures. It's like Professor McCloud here. It's like no, no, no. It has to be pictorial sequence. Can't just be a sequence of words. But yeah, sometimes I just I just posted this uh, photograph of like uh, a bunch of like. Um, squirrels like taxidermic squirrels boxing they were in like different little rooms like like these little little boxes like shoe boxes with squirrels in this boxing thing and it's totally sequential it's like yeah that's comics so scott uh, back to understanding comics for for a minute uh i'm curious about uh we we mentioned tundra 
Kitchen Sink. That book went through a number of publishers. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder how that whole process uh, sort of lays out. Uh, did you, did you uh, have a book agent? Uh, was it Dennis Kitchen? I know he's represented guys like Will Eisner mm -hmm. uh, with DC Comics. I think Understanding Comics had a printing or two at DC, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, how, how does that trajectory lay out? This was an important moment in my career, actually. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, Kitchen Sink, Kitchen Sink was being taken over by convicted felons, guys with ankle bracelets, investors who turned out not to be such good people, I guess. Um, and, and real quick, let me just tell the people, about, <laughs> this is the biggest nightmare of every cartoonist where yeah. you now have a book that people want to read and they dig it and it's out there and there's going to be lots of copies. You got to have some trust in your publisher. You got to yep. have trust in your distributor who might be able to welch out and say that uh, we're bankrupt now. So this is the biggest nightmare of yeah. cartoonists, especially one who's been in the game 10 years and, and has a bona fide hit on their hands. Continue. Yeah, no, you, that's a very good point. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, all contracts are only as good as the good faith of the parties involved. That's that's so important to remember. Um, so we were worried. We were worried about that stuff. And Dennis called me and he said, listen, you probably heard that there's a lot of problem here at Kitchen Sink. And I'm basically, he was going to lose the company. Kitchen Sink was going to be taken over by people other than Dennis. And Judy Hansen, Judith Hansen, had been working, helping uh, Kitchen Sink to get placement in bookstores and things like that. And pretty, you know, Dennis basically told me pretty soon you're going to be in an adversarial relationship with this with this publisher. And Judy here would like to become your agent and help you get the hell out of here. And that's exactly what she did. Judy came over to me. She became my agent for the first time. And we got safe temporary harbor at DC at the, it looks like a Piranha Press book or something like that. And then eventually it became a HarperCollins book. And now it's, it's been at HarperCollins since, and I did, and now all the sequels are at HarperCollins as well. Um, and as is the Zot reprint, in fact, really nice Zot print, reprint they put together. Um, but Judy was the one who got me out of there. And Judy has been instrumental in a, a bunch of people's careers. Um, Raina Telgemeier, Jean Yang, Kazu Kibuishi, a whole lot of really terrific creators. Um, and uh, but she she got me out of there. She got me she got me somewhere safe. And ever since then, she's been looking out for us. And it should you shouldn't need an agent to survive in comics some people can survive without and some there are some careers on the web where you don't need an agent but we need an agent because i still deal with print publishers and without judy i think i would have made so many mistakes that by now i just would have been a pile of rubble so i'm i'm really glad that she came over but she saved us at a at a, at a point also i got i just got to let you know that uh kitchen sink press began on Swamp Road in Wisconsin. It moved to Riverside Drive in Northampton. And then it was purchased by Ocean Properties and went down the drain. So it was, <laughs> it was a whole whole thing. And sure enough, you can find a panel in early editions of Understanding Comics with the Kitchen Sink logo saying, this is not a company. 
<laughs> and it was very well timed. <laughs> Harper Collins hasn't requested that change, I guess. No, no, they have not. Smart. I'm not even sure the current version of it. Wait, now I have to know. Hold on. Yeah. What is what is there now? You'll find it pretty quick. How many yep, printings there is. Uh, is there, do you think, at this point? I can't count the number of printings, but where is the company? Oh, there it is. Oh, oh my God. There it is. Wow. <laughs> this is not a company. <laughs> no, yeah. damn right. Factual statement. Holy moly. Yeah, this is not a company. Uh, yeah, a lot of printings, a lot of languages. Nowadays, I just count languages, like 24 languages, something like that. Wow, yeah, that's a Jeff Smith method. I was going to say, you and Jeff yeah. Smith could be dueling back and forth. <laughs> Go into his go into his place, man, and see him books that looks like it's alien language. <laughs> I love there are some that I like better than my version. The Jap the original Japanese version was gorgeous. They know just how to like do an, that an stuff, eye, man. like a white cover with an eyeball and like the like kanji characters or whatever. Fanographics was really mad whenever I said that the Japanese hip hop family trees <laughs> were the best versions. They hit me up immediately and were like, well, let's make ours the best. And I'm like, I don't even think we have this kind of paper. <laughs> Scott, I found this uh, one time digging through oh, yeah. the dollar bin, and I have uh, a few questions about it. Anybody that, I don't know, is this a public document or was this something done internally it for, is, for uh, Google? No, it was it was done for Google, although it is under um, Creative Commons public usage. I think it's, it's a pretty freely available type of a thing, although I, I can't tell you the exact details of the, the usage agreements. But yeah. Um, Google, that is that is the Google Chrome comic done in 2008. And it was me explaining the engineering decisions behind the creation of their top secret project that hardly anyone at Google knew it existed yet uh, when I was doing the comic. It was all very hush-hush. We couldn't talk about it in the cafeterias or anything. Um, and what I did was I spent like five months just talking to engineers. And I learned as much as I could. And then I turned around and I explained how the browser worked as, as a piece of engineering. Um, and uh, it, I got to work out some of my ideas about how to explain stuff, really complicated stuff uh, in comics. And I've been doing it ever since. I've done a bunch of things like that. Did one on the blockchain that, you know, the, it's, the thing is, the thing about really complicated processes and systems and things, first of all, it's important, right? Because the, you know, the planet could freaking blow up for our lack of understanding of complex topics now. You know, like this is a problem. This is a huge problem is how to get us, us simple mammals to understand these godlike things we've created. It's like E.O. Wilson said that uh, the, the, the essential problem right now is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. <laughs> right? That is a problem, right? So how do you explain complicated stuff? Well, what I finally figured out, and this is, I'm writing about this in the new book on visual communication, is that you have to reduce things to tangible objects for thinking that, that the paleolithic mammal understands. So you have a lot of metaphors, you have a lot of spatial metaphors that are in the environment, and they come from nature, right? Like up is more, like if like, let's say you're, you're, the room's kind of cold and you're like, could you turn the temperature up? Or like, hey, could you turn that music down? Okay, that's a metaphor. 
It's like the up and down has nothing to do with it. Neither of those things have anything to do with up and down. We say up and down because we know from nature that when you have a pile of rocks, you know, like there's the little pile and the big pile, well, the big pile is higher, right? So like in a world ruled by gravity, up is more, right? Well, there's a ton of stuff like that. So if you can reduce complicated ideas down to spatial metaphors that even, even the caveman understands, then you can start to get a handle on it, literally get a handle, right? You know, in the sense of like being able to put your hands on it, being able to hold it, being able to see its shape, because we remember shapes that have a tangible quality to it. So that's what I'm trying to do. It's like you, you look for layers, you look for cycles, you look for divergences, trees, all of that sort of thing. And once you can, once you can isolate that stuff, um, you can remember it. And we can begin to understand artificial intelligence and global warming and all these complex subjects that are all going to kill us one way or another if we don't figure this shit out in the next century. So, so yeah, so I'm working on that, working on saving the world best I can. Uh, <laughs> also, also the Google Chrome thing was the first example of what I call the Algernon principle, which is where I don't know anything about a subject and I got smart guys in a room to talk about it for five months or even just three days, like in the Bitcoin comic. And then I get smart enough temporarily so that I can explain it and then I forget everything. This is this is Flowers for Algernon is the story about a guy who like he's chemically treated, gets super smart and then gets dumb again. And he, he writes a diary and you get to see his progression. So it's, it's the Algernon. Algernon was the name of the lab mouse in the story. <sighs> Sorry, that was uh, like- yeah. No, that, Peter that's Parker's right Uncle Ben played him in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> for, for our audience at home. Yeah. <laughs> It's great to hear all of this. Um, you know, the applied comics thing I think is really interesting. It reminded me a yeah. little bit of there was a trend for a little while of having like a, a note taker, say at a at a panel, who would mm -hmm. be you know drawing the notes essentially. Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah. I a little bit of that, not quite the same thing. Um, they're still also... they're still there. This is a it's a growth industry. I know those guys. A lot of them, um, like I've spoken at their conferences and stuff. They're they're sweethearts. Uh, visual facilitators, you'd often That's or right. graphic graphic facilitators, you'd call them. Yeah, and you can find videos of that stuff if you're ever interested. And it's yeah. pretty like there are some amazing artists that do this. And there's yeah. a thinking part involved, like a translation of the words to some sort of image. Uh, pretty interesting on its own. Um, how were you received by like Google engineers? Because we're old enough that we had the reaction, we mentioned it earlier, of the art teachers that are like comics, ooh, gross. And, you know, <laughs> comics are for kids and all this stuff. Did Google, did they welcome you? Did they understand, okay, comics and explaining this, this, this makes sense? Google had baggage at the time as well because they were known for uh, engineers being behind like almost all of the decision-making and there was like no art yep. behind their company at all. <laughs> gotcha. so, so that's the landscape. But they were all nerds. Sure. They were all of them nerds. And that, so that helped grease the wheels for me. Now that didn't mean it was easy, like, coming in the engineers were my bosses really uh the google, the google chrome team the ones who created the browser were they was headed up by sundar pachai who's now their ceo or whatever um uh and they just really just they cared about getting the story right explaining it correctly understanding the shape of the subject and you know don't don't sugarcoat it 
See, I, I really, I don't believe when it comes to explaining stuff in comics, this is something Will Eisner said, this is like one of the great untapped potentials of comics. And I believe it is using it to explain stuff. It's like never, ever treat it as a sugar colored, good covered pill, right? You know, never, never think about like, oh yeah, the subject is this bitter, boring thing, but we're going to just like, we're going to, we're going to have a superhero team battle. And then somebody gives a speech about don't do drugs. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. The subject, every subject is interesting when you understand it. Everything, no matter how technical it is, it's interesting once you understand it. If I can get you to understand it, you're going to be interested. So you have to have faith in the message, but you also have to have faith in the medium because sometimes these explain-o comics, they're sponsored by people who don't want it to look too comic booky. You know, it's like, oh, can all the word balloons be set in Times New Roman and flush left? And oh, you know, like we we have this sort of look to it. And you know, it's like, no, no, no. You use all the tools of the medium, you have faith in the message, you just explain everything as you understand it. Once you ex once you, the cartoonist, understand it, you can explain anything. That's our gift. That's our superpower, right? So anyway, so that that was my approach. And in the end, I was able to convince the engineers because, because they decided that, yeah, this actually is how our, our browser works. <laughs> and that is, to them, that was the story. And we all knew that everybody was going to write stories about, oh, the corporate maneuvering, or what will Microsoft think or whatever. But I knew these guys. I had talked to these guys, and I knew they really just wanted to make a thing that they thought was going to work and that was their story so i let them tell it themselves i actually put them in the panel um explaining the things that i had figured out except then we had to go back through twenty thousand hours of interviews to find the exact line of dialogue from each engineer that happened to match what i had already put in the panel it was that part was complicated were there about twenty three thousand hours worth of uh edits and re-edits because like the, 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 the way I understood that company at the time, like whenever they would want to change a color in Gmail or something like that, you'd have to proffer like all of this material and explain why this shade of blue is better than this other shade of blue. And it's just this very methodical scientific approach. Uh, now I got to say spectrum level. And I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't encounter that actually. It was good. weird. Yeah, no, they were they were pretty cool. I think it was maybe it was right after that they turned into that, but no, they were they were actually pretty chill. I think one could argue that the uh, like applied cartooning is is how the majority of people in the world see comics. Mm -hmm. um, as much uh, as I want everybody to read comic books and graphic novels and web comics, meaning on an unconscious level, like like well, I mean, in a reality level, like a lot of people will never open a comic yeah. book necessarily, but they'll see IKEA instructions for how yeah, to put yeah. together their shelves yep. or, or their like airline safety instructions. Yeah, Heimlich or yeah. sign on the wall, something. Yeah, yeah, the airline safety cards, the like yes. how not to get malaria or whatever. You know, it's like yeah, never absolutely. Seen, never read that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's actually I'm I'm a big fan of. Oh, no, I think it's meningitis. There's a there's a like meningitis symptoms card that I think is the gold standard of how to how to do symptoms. Yeah, <laughs> this I, is what I, I live for. Taking pictures of like um, signs like they would be like a Boy Scout sign on a trail and it'd be like, you know, not starting fires or hauling out your garbage, but it's like a nine panel grid. You know? <laughs> there, there was a great one in, in Japan when I was last there and it was a fire safety thing and they provide you a little plastic bag to put on your head and start running. 
like you <laughs> swoop it so that you catch a little couple breaths of air and you just start running wow. wherever the heck you're supposed to go. There was one I remember uh, Eric Larson, <laughs> Savage Dragon had on his on his message board like 20 years ago. It was a picture of like wash your hands and then under the hand dryer, like the two red li wavy lines and somebody wrote like wash your press button, uh, get bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, Scott. I wonder if we could get into uh, what you're working on now. I've heard you talk a little bit yeah. about it. You mentioned visual communication, and in terms of like process and how you put together what sounds like a very big project, can you can you tell us some about where that is, what you're doing, how it's coming, how how you do it? Yeah, I just finished draft two of the layouts, and it's like 561 pages, and I'm like, this should be shorter. Uh, for a lot of it, I mean, it'll be better. It's a better book if it's shorter. I like it shouldn't be that long. You That's know, like exciting. It's... Tell us about your editing process. Oh yeah, well, um, what I do, like I mentioned, I nowadays I lay out every, you know, uh, on these giant canvases. I'll do like eighty pages at once, you know, on a single Photoshop document on the Cintiq. So I'm zooming in and out, and like, but that way I can think about the whole thing. You know, I can think about how the whole thing breaks down, and again, trying to get past the page and think about just the flow. Um, but like I did, yeah, I did a first draft and then I've done a second draft and a lot of that's completely new and it got longer. It was supposed to get shorter. It got longer. Now I'm going to do draft three and it's got to get shorter. It really has to get shorter because right now it's just tedious. There's just too much stuff. You know, like you, when you, when you're writing nonfiction, you know, like you, you kind of want to show your work. Hey, I researched this thing. Yeah, let me explain that. And then. Just like with the Google comic, I figured out a perfect way to explain something in the and and my my editors, so to speak, you know, were just like, uh, that's really good, Scott, but it's actually not that important <laughs> that we explain that. I was like, oh, but I finally figured it out. Um, so yeah, I just my editing process for nonfiction, you know. There's the the Algernon phase for me has been years on this book of just learning and learning. I had to go back to school, basically, not literally, but figuratively. You know, I got a bookshelf back there is like, you know, filled with Edward Tufte and, you know, the, the evolution of vision and, you know, all this. So, you know, so there's data visualization, evolution, there's sequential stuff. There's um, there's, uh, uh, you know, the biology of vision. There's neurobiology, all of that stuff. I had to learn that stuff from scratch, most of it. Um, and it took a really, really, really long time. And part of my problem was that there were no really good visual explanations of most of what I needed to learn, which is another reason to make the book in the first place, because there should have been like, why is it so hard to find a good visual explanation of how the eye works? Every, every visualization of the eye is just stinks. Um, first of all, cause it's in 2d and you can't really can't do a cross section of that stuff. Um, so boy, where was I going with this? So yeah, so I, I lay out a whole bunch of pages all at once. And then I'm, I, I'm going in, I'm constantly making changes and I'm constantly moving stuff around, but I'm trying to do it holistically. The chapter is the unit. I want the whole chapter to feel like it all belongs together. And I'm drawing it all on, on my, uh, you know, my Cintiq tablet over there. Um, and, ah. How do I put it? I don't know. I, you know, I've been in it too long. It's like, I'm like the fish in the aquarium who can't even imagine a world without water now. It doesn't even see the water anymore. I've just been surrounded by this project for so long. Do you have an editor that, that you're, you know, bouncing 
getting feedback yeah. from or or do you share it with some of the peers like you you've name dropped some some big people <laughs> big cartoonists uh are you passing it around like for that to get fresh eyes yeah some of some of the same people who are looking at my stuff way back in the zot days or understanding comics i'm still sharing it with them uh my editor at first second is mark siegel he's absolutely fantastic um but yeah we we have another round coming up now that i'm done with draft two um and the only thing I've told them is like, I definitely want to make it shorter, but I'm not going to, other than that, I just want you to tell me, how does this, how does this suck? And, you know, that's important. I should know how it sucks. Like, you know, I want them to be able to just say straight up, Scott, this is the most boring thing I ever read. Or like, you know, like I had to put it down a lot, right? I don't want to hear, you know, like I, I need to hear if they didn't read it in one setting, sitting, if that was, if it was torture, if they could only go 20 minutes at a time, that's important information, you know? And even if the news is bad, it makes it a better book in the end. And I can be very impersonal about that stuff. When I'm doing fiction, the one thing about fiction I'm going to say is like, with something like the sculptor is the person who lays it, who, who writes it and draws it, lays it out, conceives of it, brainstorms it is a different person than the person who comes back and starts digging and chopping and cutting things out and changing things. You have to be a different person. If you're that guy, if you're doing both parts of that job, you're just a different guy. Like, like when I'm, when I'm like creating, I'm listening to lots of music. You know, when I go for my walks, I'm listening to lots and lots of music. I'm getting all inspired. But when I'm editing, when I'm in the editing phase, I listen to no music at all. I still go for the walks, but the whole time I'm thinking, okay, this has to go there. This has to, I have to cut that. That doesn't make any sense. This, this bit of the plot, it doesn't add up, you know, it's, you, you're a different person. Are your deadlines self-imposed and what is, uh, how does your work schedule flow per day? Like a very specific eight hours and stop or something like this? I work long hours every day, every day, seven days a week all through the year. But then, yeah, if Ivy and me want to see a movie or something, we see a movie, you know? So it's just like, so it's my, it's my hours, right? You know, so I can, I can poke holes in that. I can do stuff with that. But if I'm not doing something fun, I'm working, which is also fun. Um, I work very long hours. But then when I finish a project, sometimes we'll do something like go on tour for a year and see all 50 states, right? So it's a work hard, play hard thing. But I'm always working always uh, like, you know, I'll start work early, I'll finish kind of late. Um, and then, you know, I'll have a few hours with the family in the evening and I, I, I cherish that time. And then I'm back at the drawing board. Um, as far as deadlines go, I take deadlines very seriously. And it pains me when things run long. You know, I had a very supportive editor, you know, Mark Siegel again was very supportive with the sculptor. It did go long, but it was kind of with his blessing because we wanted to make it the best book we could. Um, and with this book too, you know, like he understands, I, I really want to get this right. And it turns out that this is a really, really big job that I took for myself to, to cover every aspect of visual communication. It sounds insane now when I look back at it. That's, a, that's an insane thing to want to do, but, but I, now I got to do it. I got to get it right. And so that's why I'm willing to go back for a third round of revisions to, to fix this thing and finally get back to the drawing. 
once I'm actually drawing it, it's it's very predictable. Then I know I can do it at a certain rate. I was going to ask about that, man. A lot of this thinking work up front, and then do you just blast through these pages when the time comes? Yeah, I wouldn't say blast, but I definitely drive at a moderate pace. I stay, I stay, it's like 55 miles an hour all the way to the finish. You know, <laughs> I don't, I definitely don't speed. Do your listening habits change for that final draft when you're drawing and you've kind uh, of worked out the thinking? Come on, show of hands. Everybody's listening habits change depending on what part of the work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. If you're writing, you know, you can't, you can't be listening to audiobooks while you're writing, right? But when you're just drawing, when you're inking, oh man, it's paradise. It's like, let's, let's go through the whole back catalog of, you know, This American Life or whatever. Um, yeah, they changed dramatically. I, I have a playlist that's like non-melodic kind of repetitive minimalist stuff like Steve Reich or Underworld or this marimba thing that goes on forever. That's what I listen to when I'm like really conceiving when I'm in the writing stage. And then I can listen to stuff with lots of different kinds of music with lyrics and things like that when I'm doing something a little bit more spongy. But then but then then I can listen to anything and I listen all the time. I always have some kind of headphones in when I'm when I'm doing the drawing always. That writing part is is scary because depending on how long you go like you're jacking out of the matrix for potentially a really long time like things That's are happening right. out in the universe you have no idea <laughs> until, until you get re-engaged you're like there was an insurrection at the white house like <laughs> yeah yeah it's like chris ware talks about that it's like you know he says yeah the you know your your friends will have kids the kids will have kids you know like whole generations will rise and fall while you're working on your slow motion picture stories yeah it's it's a little scary and you know death looms right i'm old enough now it's just like well i only have so many years Fortunately, my mom is 98, so I can kind of clock it back to a somewhat longer time horizon. And when, when Will Isa was my age, it was only a couple of years since he did contract with God. And, uh, you know, he did 27 more graphic novels after that. So maybe there's hope. Scott, you look like a clean liver, man. I, I, clean <laughs> liver with a clean liver. Yes. <laughs> uh, before, before we bounce, man, once again, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Here, here's a here's a quickie for the road, man. Uh, you know, we, we cover a broad range of stuff. Uh, you see behind us, there's just a lot of long boxes over there. I do wonder if you have a long box off off to the side or whatever. And uh, I do. what are, what are some of those uh, prize comics that that maybe we need to uh, cover on the channel sooner than later? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. You haven't talked to Mazza Kelly yet, have you? Hey, man, if you could hook us up. <laughs> Yeah. What was he's, his number? Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't have his number, but man, he's he's quite a thinker. I'm like looking over here. Hey, have you seen Pantheon? The have, comic, not the company. The comic, yeah. No, Pan Pan is that oh Pantheon is the company. Yeah, there is a there is a company named Pantheon. I forgot that it was called Pantheon. Yeah, no, there's a comic called Pantheon, which is uh, basically the sex adventures of uh, the Egyptian gods. It's by Hamish Steele. That's, that came out just a few years ago. Definitely recommend that. You're all going to see my bald spot now. Here, I'm going to go off screen just a little <laughs> so you don't see my bald spot. 
Harrison um, Ford showed his bald spot in in the last Indiana Jones. So you're in. Good <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Um, I'm trying to. I'm just so looking at the at my collection. Oh yeah, I got the one back here. Man. What's the What's the quintessential Carl Burks comic? Duck comic. You got You got something in front of your thoughts? No, I don't. I I well, I think if I picture one, I picture the Lemmings. But um, you know, Barks. Barks is a touchstone for me, but he's not a formative influence because I wasn't the right age right. when I got into comics. I got into comics a little bit later. In fact, Kurt Busiek had to really push hard to get me to read comics in middle school. I didn't want any part of that. I was like looking at real art. I was reading real book. I was reading the Foundation Trilogy and looking at Salvador Dali and stuff. And I didn't need any of these dumb comics. So he, he had to really push hard. So Kirk can really take it take credit for my making comics at all. What was he pushing on you? Like like Werewolf by Night or something? <laughs> no, it's like the first comics he got me to read were Daredevil and X-Men, I think it was. I think Daredevil was number one. I still remember the the stilt man. I don't know why the cover of the stilt man. Wally Wood. somehow. Why? Uh, what? Wait, Wally Wood? Well, Wally Wood did the the like the first stilt man. I wonder. If You're he... right. You're right. He did. Um, the I'll tell you this. This is my this. Okay, we all have our like childhood uh sort of Elysian Fields thing. Okay, this is my memory. Every morning, I would wake up an hour before I had to go to school middle school when Kurt lent me these stacks of Daredevils, stacks of X-Men. And every morning on WBCN in Boston, they would play the LP du jour. And I would tape it on a little C120 Radio Shack cassette. I would tape the LP so I could listen to all this new music that was coming out. And I would sit up uh, against my headboard, which had the little like fake wood and the little drawers. And I would read those comics, listening to whatever LP was coming out that morning was Roxy Music or Kraftwerk or whatever it was. And I would sit and I would read those X-Men comics. And I'd read like a couple of X-Men comics or a couple of Daredevil comics in the morning before I went to school. So as I'd be like, we're talking like I was 15 years old, 14 years old. And it was like at the end of the end of two, uh, at the end of 1975 so i was 15 years old and i started drawing i started drawing uh comics like comic book pictures for real and i remember that christmas that christmas i started that christmas not opening presents but before people were awake i got up early and i was drawing comics in the morning before we opened presents and i finished i finished the drawing of the stilt man and I finished up a Spider-Man drawing that I was doing. We were doing it for a role-playing game that Kurt and I had. We're superheroes. You could play superheroes. And that was all before I went down to open presents. And it's the happiest Christmas memory ever because I got to finish some comics work. I got to finish what I was doing before opening presents. And to me, that was, that was it. To start every morning by making comics. And still to this day, still my family knows my happiest birthdays and holidays are to start by just spending a couple hours drawing something before before the day begins and that's that's how i start a good day that's fantastic scott thanks for your time uh where can people find you online uh anything you want to promote at this moment oh it's easy scottmcleod.com just spelled like in the books 
I think we mentioned my, my real name is MCLEOD. It's the old Scottish spelling, but it is, it's, uh, it's, I spelled it so people could pronounce it. Unlike Kurt Busick, who's stuck now, everybody gets that wrong. And Bill Sinkevich, oh my God. But uh, <laughs> so it's scottmcleod.com is my site. And then these days, mostly you'll find me on Twitter. And again, that's just Scott McLeod, all one word. S-C-O-T-T-M-C-C-L-O-U-D. Uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. Not so active on my site because, you know, the web changes. Thank you so much, man. So much food for thought, man. I've got to listen and re-listen to this a couple of times over, man, to yeah, properly digest fantastic. it all. Thank you, guys. And thank wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Scott.